0: Hi everyone and welcome back to this week's episode of Radio Monash's No Theory.
1: I'm your host Lydia. And I'm Simone. Today we're joined by Gerald, a filmmaker, writer and community organiser for Anakbayan Melbourne, a grassroots Filipino youth and student organisation fighting for national and social liberation in the Philippines, while also working in solidarity with other struggles all over the world. Gerald's
0: family immigrated to Australia in 2012 when he was just 10 years old and are currently um, involved with various community organizations supporting the people's struggle for national and social liberation in the Philippines, as well as issues confronting the international community, especially in Australia. His films often deal with the memory and continuity of resistance of the Filipino people and other migrant communities. He is also currently studying a Bachelor of Arts at Monash University with a major in anthropology. Hi hey Gerald, welcome. How Hi, are you? Thank
2: you. I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: No, we're it's so a excited. Pleasure. Yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> <be> a Great <laughs>
0: chat. Um, all right. So we're just going to start with asking you to tell us a little yeah. bit about yourself. Um, obviously, we've already provided listeners yeah. with some background info, but whatever you'd like to share, really.
2: Yeah. Um. You know, as I was was said before, I'm a filmmaker. I'm a community organizer. Um. I guess you could say I'm a writer as well, uh, poet, um, an aspiring SoundCloud rapper, if, if, <laughs> if you would like. Um, but yeah, I think that yeah, I think that summarizes as well for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Excellent. So you, as we've already mentioned, you immigrated to Australia in 2012 as a child. So, uh, what was that experience like for you?
2: Well, um, it was, it was. Uh, I would say I wouldn't say it was hard. Um, Transferring into Australia and Australian society in general. I mean, um, because in the Philippines it is pretty, it's pretty much still um, a colonial country in terms of its language. Um, so I had a fair bit of, you know, knowledge of English uh, when I came here. So I didn't. I guess you could call it, call it assimilation, but I didn't really have a hard time doing that. I did have a run-in um, in my primary school, uh, which I thought was a, you know, a racist incident in terms of. Um, they accused me of hacking a teacher 's computer along with all the other Asian kids, and oh, they held wow. me they held me in the library indefinitely until I admitted that I did it, which I did not but yeah um it was uh, it was an interesting experience that one I think it gave me like you know the first experience of you know this is um you know the hidden side of Australia mm. as well
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, did you experience culture shock in any way though or struggle with your own cultural identity, do
2: you think? Um, um, I wouldn't say so in terms of, I mean, all the other migrants that I know have had a culture shock when coming here. But my parents were um, community organisers on their own right in the the Philippines as well. So I was raised in a very progressive uh, uh, household. You know, um, a lot of Filipinos when I was in the Philippines would, try to lighten their skin. I think majority of Filipinos would try to lighten their skin. And, you know, the number one product in the Philippines in 2017 was skin whitening products. But, you know, I never grew up, you know, hating my own skin or even being, you know, bringing my lunch to school, whatever that is, however they say it smells or something like that. I was never insecure about those things. So I didn't think I had a culture shock going in here um, Mm -hmm. because I did keep my cultural identity even... Uh, while being here.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you kind of feel like I guess some of those um like almost whitewashing tactics you were already exposed to back home in the Philippines before you came here. So it wasn't such a well yeah a big shock.
2: Yeah. Um, prepared, I mean or? like it's I think it's to be honest with you, I would think it was worse in the Philippines. Oh, okay. Um, you know, there is a culture of worshipping um anything western and mm-hmm. um anything you know white as mm-hmm. we would like to call it and yeah but I've always rejected it so I was yeah I didn't have a culture shock going in here I found it easier actually to to yeah to assimilate mm-hmm. even though I hate the word assimilation mm-hmm. and I don't think if anyone's listening don't assimilate
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> could yeah. you tell us a bit more about Why you hate that
2: word? Yeah, please do. Uh, Because assimilation, you know, it's kind of, it implies that you have to forego your cultural identity in order to be accepted in a country like Australia. Even though, you know, I do not recognise at all Australia as a legitimate state in um, in any sense of the word except legally that it is a state but you know in a country that is founded on stolen land and genocide it is a ridiculous idea to even mm. you know suggest that migrants should come and assimilate especially the migrants coming here as are what we call you know call them economic migrants but we call them you know forced migrants here mm-hmm. if it wasn't for countries like australia the united states uh, the uk um, extracting natural resources in so-called global south, there wouldn't be this influx of migrants here in Australia. So it is kind of Australia's fault anyway that we are here mm-hmm. in the first place. And then they would suggest to us that we should let go of that cultural identity to even fit in in Australian society. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, it is easier fitting in into Australian society while not foregoing your cultural identity. That's why I don't think anyone should assimilate in the first place.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yeah, and I guess I personally find it a bit hypocritical. Like Australia, a part of our national identity is supposedly, you know, multiculturalism, mm. diversity. And yet there are definitely like the, the idea of assimilation in itself is sort of quite trying to like, I guess, squash that. Mm. And it's, yeah, it's quite hypocritical. I yeah, and
2: so. assi- assimilation, um, it's... You know, in idea, it says that once you integrate into Australian society by forgoing your cultural identity and embracing a kind of Australian identity, is that you get to, you know, be equal with anyone Mm -hmm. else here. But that's not the case at all, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Migrants are uh, (laughs) disappropriate, I cannot pronounce that word, but are not provided the same kind of basic services that normal Australians uh, would have, or white Australians would have. For example, uh, my mom is the chairperson of Gabriela Australia, which is a grassroots uh, women's uh, alliance of Filipino women here in Australia, and they deal a lot with domestic violence issues. And in this, what we find most in these domestic violence issues is that most of these, uh, migrants who are victims of domestic violence do not, cannot be afforded the same basic social services that are afforded to other, uh, other people in here because of their visa status. Mm-hmm. And that visa status is a legitimate issue that should be confronted by Australian societies that do we consider uh, migrants who are on temporary visas on the same level that we consider migrants here, who are who have become citizens or on permanent residency and i think there's still that big gap between people on temporary visas mm-hmm. and people who are here as citizens
1: yeah mm-hmm. and like i just heard today that like the budget that recently got announced they they're not going to give welfare to any migrants I th- this is don't take my word for it but i'm pretty sure yeah, that's <laughs> all right <laughs> uh, but um i think like migrants that haven't been in Australia, like have only been in Australia um, below five years, can't Mm. get like any welfare, (laughs) which is, yeah, pretty discriminatory. Mm.
2: Mm. And we saw this amplified, especially during the pandemic as well, because we were organizing Mm. international students as well. And, you know, there was that, you know, when Scott Morrison, for example, told the international students that they should just go home um, (laughs) during the pandemic as if they are not, they haven't been milked by australian society for their money you know it's a multi-billion dollar industry this Mm -hmm. education education has been commercialized so much that it is now an industry a multi-billion dollar industry but when you know when things hit the fan the australian society just says you should just go home as if they have no right to be here as if they're not contributing to the australian economy yeah
1: like billions of dollars yeah And, and then when they all did leave now you know universities are forced to like cut staff and Mm. cut resources because they can't they can't afford to run the university without those international Mm. students Mm. that they're you could say, you know, ex- practically exploiting in a way. <laughs> mm,
2: it is, you know, it is the very definition of exploitation, actually. Yeah. And, you know, there's this stereotype that all international students are rich or whatever like that. But if you go on the ground, especially on the pandemic, you would find that a lot of international students are actually in these small colleges, mm. ex- uh, exploiting small colleges who are just here to work. Most of them are in their 40s, in their 50s. And that is the bulk of international students who came here to go into these small colleges and work uh, in Australia. And these were the hardest hit during the pandemic. They did not have houses to go to. They didn't have services. And a
1: lot of them like couldn't work a lot of hours too. Like I'm pretty sure you can only as an international student with like a student visa you mm. can only work like 20 hours a yep, week a week yeah so yeah and then and then they weren't getting any welfare or any support from the government it was just like mm. being absolutely like messed over mm. um, and in so many different ways yeah and i've noticed too that international
0: students tend to be a lot more vulnerable to exploitation mm. in the work that they do exactly mm, yeah. um, like you know being paid a ridiculously small amount of money yeah. for a job that you know like someone such as myself probably would not even consider mm. because I'm in more of a privileged mm. position and
1: consider my options mm. more. Yeah, mm. and, like, you're eligible for, like, Centrelink or something. Exactly. Like, yeah, like, it you know, desperate people who don't have a lot of options tend to, like, take whatever is presented to them. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately mm. that can be, like, yeah. you know... You know, minimum wages or like below minimum wages.
2: Yeah, actually, I have a song coming out. Be be uh, oh. be aware of that, guys. It's called Immigrant, and one of the lyrics there that I wrote is that. People, uh, migrants on temporary visas are strangers to the minimum wage. There is no minimum wage for, you know, um, I mean, there is legally, there is a minimum wage yeah. for international students. But if you talk to these international students, they get paid as low as $6 an hour mm-hmm. here in the workplaces yeah. here. And it was actually, you know, the lack of services that are afforded to international students were filled with, there was a vacuum left by the Australian government that were filled by organisations such as Anak Bayan, Migrante, Gabriela. All our organisations who provided mutual aid to these people because they were left uh, they were left alone by the uh, by the Australian government. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. And you see that too with people who like have working holiday visas and then they work out in like some farm mm. in the middle of nowhere in like country Victoria and they also get exploited Mm.
2: too I mean you you say any temporary visa any yeah being exploited here partner visa whether there's a visiting visa whether you're on 457 temporary visas Mm. you are getting exploited in Australia Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah well Thank you for all of that, Gerald. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, that was fantastic. Love that tangent. Uh, We might go for our first song break of the day, take a little bit of a break. Um, So this is Us by Ruby Ibarra. Enjoy, everyone. We'll be back shortly with Gerald. Welcome back, everyone. We're here today chatting with Gerald. So Gerald, you're involved with the advocacy group Anak Bayan, a comprehensive national democratic mass organization of the Filipino youth. Can you tell us a little bit more about this organization and your involvement?
2: Yeah, so Anak Bayan was formed in the Philippines in 1998 as a direct successor of Kabataang Makabayan, which is uh, the main youth force that overthrew the dictatorship in uh, in 1986 mm-hmm. and also fought the dictatorship during the 70s and 80s. Um, so Anakbayan, because Kabataang Makabayan was outlawed uh, by the Philippine government, Anakbayan was established in 1998 uh, and has since been you know, the main force, uh, main student and youth force in Philippine society that pushed for change. He had a large um, involvement in the ousting of another president in 2001, 2000, 2000 or 2001 in which he was ousted and um, Anak Bayan mobilized hundreds of thousands of youth into the streets, and ousted uh, ousted the president. So, main thing about Anak Bayan, especially in the Philippines, uh, it has a different character in the Philippines and countries such as Australia and the United States. In the Philippines, its main uh, you know goal is to integrate. The Filipino youth into the working class communities and also peasant communities and indigenous communities and work towards uh, and with them in terms of fighting for national and social liberation. Here in Australia we are building alliances with other um, groups such as uh, you know Anti-Colonial Asian Alliance, shout out to them um, the West Papuan, the West Papuan organizations, the Palestinian organizations and all other organizations um, here in Australia to try consolidate the diaspora especially the youth in the fight for national and social liberation in the Philippines, which is which is still ongoing um, mm-hmm. up to this day. Yeah. Awesome. That's Excellent.
1: Really interesting. Yeah, thank you yeah. so much. Yeah, that was no a lot worries. of information that, yeah. <laughs> so no um, in that in, in that organization um, what projects have you or are you currently working on?
2: Mm, so in Anakbayan, we've worked with migrante uh, australia migrante melbourne or in gabriel australia which are our sister organizations we come from the same movement um so as we were discussing before we did the damaya migrante program which gave um food packs and assistance to international students during the pandemic and you know it received um a little bit of funding from the victorian government um during the pandemic but it was kind of too late as well, but we did provide those um, food packs and assistance to international students. Uh, we also do educational forums. We do film screenings and we go out to know, uh, places of struggle such as you know the Palestinian rally and also um, there was a strike at McCormick's at, uh, at here in Clayton, actually. Uh, McCormick's is the company who makes the gravy in KFC and also uh, the sauces in McDonald's and they went on strike um, some time ago and we were also there. So we provide solidarity wherever we are and also building those relationships and educating people about the the struggle in the Philippines. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Excellent. And um, how did you personally get involved with this group?
2: Well, <laughs> it was, uh, and <laughs> as I said before, my parents were, uh, yeah. were uh, community organizers in the Philippines. My mm-hmm. grandfather was a political was a political detainee during the martial law in the Philippines, during the Marcos dictatorship. So it kind of, you know, I kind of tell people I did not have a choice but to be an mm-hmm. activist and actually be mm-hmm. introduced mm-hmm. to this group. So I've known him for a very long time, even when I was young, when I was like, what eight, nine mm-hmm. years old? So it was established here when I was twelve, and the, the the minimum age was thirteen. So I kind of held a grudge in for, the for nakbayan because they didn't let me join because <laughs> I was twelve years old. So I kind of joined the artist organization <laughs> first, and then I went to nakbayan. Uh, but yeah, that was my involvement uh, with the nakbayan.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, you've also indicated that you're very interested in fighting for national and social liberation in the Philippines. So, what are the particular issues that you're concerned about regarding uh, this issue?
2: Well, I you know, in in the in the broader context, we are concerned obviously with the domination of US imperialism in the mm-hmm. Philippines, you know, the export-oriented, import-dependent um, character of the economy you know where the, one of the biggest uh, exporters of rice yet we import rice at the same time what? which does not make sense right yeah. so that is you can see imperialism there you know as i would quote uh burkina faso's um previous uh president um thomas sankara he said you know imperialism doesn't isn't just guns and war it's also you know what you put uh put food on the table it's also loans it's also all of these things yeah. when they come to you with loans that's imperialism as well yeah you know? like the imf yeah like imf World bank, bank. Yeah. and things like that and actually one of the campaigns that nakbayan fought was the k-12 program that was implemented in the philippines so back then in the philippines there was no year 11 or year 12 right so which was good because it it aims is to develop its own economy and not export its labor to countries like Australia, but with the loans that the IMF and World Bank gave, they got. Uh, it's called the Structural Adjustment Program. One yeah. of the, one of the uh, things there was that to add K to twelve into Philippine society, which means kindergarten to year twelve, so th- you can be qualified in other countries such as Australia and the United States. So it's aimed at exporting labor uh, from mm-hmm. the Philippines. We have. Well, what is called the labor export policy, mm. um in the Philippines. So yeah, um I forgot what the question was. Um, <laughs> so went on You've that answered round. it very well. Don't you? <laughs> yeah. Like, what what
1: what are you concerned about?
2: So oh yeah. So yeah. you know, uh, that's one thing. You know, the yeah. domination of imperialism in the Philippines. Um also the feudal structure in Philippine society. You know, most of our peasants still don't have land. There's no, um, you know, uh, seven out of ten farmers do not own their land in the Philippines. There is no real agrarian reform. Uh, our indigenous peoples are the ancestral lands are being are being stolen, and are being occupied by big mining companies. Mind you also Australian mining company Oceana yeah. Gold is involved in this as mm-hmm. well. And there's so many people that have been killed, and in now that was that is the broader context and what we're fighting for. But also we're also fighting for. Uh, you know in this current context the Duterte administration in the Philippines has really you know imposed a fascist dictatorship um, in the Philippines you know more than 30,000 people have died in what is called the war on drugs you know in which respect the drug dealers and drug users are killed Um, in their homes, are shot in their homes. It was called Tokang Operation. Tokang means knock, knock, because they would just knock on your door and then shoot you, right? So there was 30,000 extrajudicial killings just on the war on drugs alone. And there's also hundreds of killings on activists, and there's been hundreds of killings on land defenders. The Philippines has been recognized by the international community as the most dangerous place for land defenders um, in the Philippines. And, you know, even though I do not believe the UN does anything uh, on this issue the UN still consider uh, you know the Philippines a human rights disaster especially since it's It passes anti-terror law, which recognizes everyone, uh, virtually everyone who opposes the government as a terrorist. So Mm -hmm. it kind of goes back to, uh, you know, the United States logic of terror tagging post 9-11 politics in which you're branded as a terrorist and then you're eligible to be killed. So that is what we're fighting for in the Philippines. Basically, the killings that are happening and also the economic you know, the economic hardship of the Filipino people that forces forces us to migrate here in the first place, yeah. you know. The Filipinos are, yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's third largest in Australia in terms of population. Wow. And there's millions more all over the world. Yeah.
1: Would you um then be considered a terrorist? Just going back to that point that you said before.
2: Yeah. Actually, Anakbayan has been tagged. We call oh. it red tagging. Anakbayan has been tagged as... You know, uh, last year actually a Philip a Filipino general by the name of General Palade, which is the head of the National Task Force to end local communist armed conflict, has tagged the organizations here as terrorist organizations. Right, against international law, against uh, against the international community. And it was actually the community who defended us on this. Is that no, actually Migrante and Akbayan and all these organizations have helped us before. When we have nothing to eat, they were there, and when we needed help, they were there. When we needed help on our visas, they were there. So it was the community that defended us here. But this has been going on not just here, not just in Australia, in the Philippines, in the United States, even in Europe. All these same organizations are being tagged as terrorist groups, without no legal basis. Mm-hmm. Wow!
1: Jeez, that's aw- yeah. Do you uh, like fear going back to the Philippines? Have you gone back to the Philippines since you since twenty twelve?
2: Yeah, um, I've gone back in twenty sixteen. Oh yeah. Um, this was when Duterte was, f- uh, you know, was newly elected. Yeah. Um, But, you know, there is a real fear there, obviously. You know, there's so many, especially nakbayan members as well. And nakbayan members have historically been abducted, has historically been extrajudicially killed in the Philippines. We have so many members that are being harassed in the Philippines right now, being detained, uh, political prisoners. And this is all against international law, by the way, which the Philippines ignore. Um, But yeah, there is a real danger there to be had. Uh, to be in the Philippines. Here, there's not so much because, you know, we exist in in the society. But in in the Philippines, you know, there is a real danger um, to activists like me. And also, you know, the one (laughs) outside, she's also in Anakbayan. You know, there is a real concern for our safety in the Philippines.
0: That's really awful. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that sort of segues nicely into the next question I'd like to ask you. So, um... Australia, I find, we can definitely have a lot of tunnel vision and worry, you know, what's going on within our own country? Mm. There's so many gaps in our knowledge internationally. I mean, I know Mm. I'm even guilty of this. Mm. So how do you think we can inspire Australian society to think beyond its own backyard and to to look beyond and care about some of these global issues, such as what's happening in the Philippines?
2: Mm. I mean, first it starts with acknowledging that Australia is complicit in all of this, right? It first starts with the acknowledgement that we see Australia as kind of a harmless country Mm. in Mm -hmm. terms of, you know, it's so safe here, relatively. Um, But, um, you know, we have to acknowledge that Australia in and of itself, especially as a close ally of the United States, are complicit in all of these wars. You know, emphasis on like a
1: close ally to the US. Yeah, very close
2: ally to the US. (laughs) (laughs) Only Australia, uh, Australia is the only country who have followed the United States in every war that they have been uh-huh. in, throughout its history. Australia yeah. is the only one. The UK hasn't even done that, <laughs> you know. Australia is the only one, and also Australia also has its own colonial conquests yeah. in the Pacific, in the Pacific, uh, Pacific region, in Indonesia, in West Papua, in East Timor. We forget about all of these things, you know. Australia is training Indonesian military. To uh, you know, uh, Indonesian military who kills West Papuans, who ethnically cleanse West Papuans, Australian mining companies are in the Philippines, are in all of these countries, displacing indigenous peoples, killing indigenous peoples. Australia, you know, Elbit Systems, an arms um an arms dealer, is complicit in selling arms and also taking technology from Israel, right? Yeah. The same guns that are being used to kill Palestinians are also made in Australia, made from Australian made uh, Australian companies who are here. Elbit system its name is. Remember that name because that is that is a company that is complicit in what's happening around the world. In Myanmar, in Colombia, in Palestine, in the Philippines, and all of these countries. this Australian Australian companies are funding all of these. All of these atrocities that are happening, mm-hmm. so it starts with that acknowledgement, and also these conversations that are happening, and that we are not separated only by uh, race, for example, that you're Australian, I'm Filipino, and all this and that. Majority of the people here are also, you know, working people. You know, we have that common ground as working people as well. That we do have the same interests in mind. You know, mm. we're all being exploited here, yeah. although in varying degrees. You know, as students are getting exploited, working class people are getting exploited we're all getting exploited. So we have that common point of unity, although there are varying degrees of oppression, we have that common point of unity in which we can work towards. And that is the principle of international solidarity that we are trying to push. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, excellent.
0: Um, All right, we might just ask one more question before we go to a song break. Uh, Basically, just on what you were saying, Gerald, Obviously Australia likes to play innocent mm. on a lot of these topics and almost shoulder it off to the US, you know. Mm. They're the ones funding what's going on in a lot of these countries. Mm. So how do you think we can highlight these narratives more and actually hold our own government accountable? Mm.
2: Well, you know, there are many community organizations here, uh, you know, for uh, from the Philippines, from West Papua, uh, from Latin America, that we can approach and be in solidarity with. But it's also important to, you know, not take away from their voices, that let them be heard as well, yep. you know, amplify the voices of these communities and let them be heard in Australian society. You know, it's very important that we do not silence these people and we do not talk over these people because they are the ones experiencing this the most, right? So it's important to amplify those voices and also, also be in solidarity, be in real solidarity with them. You know, not standing over them, not but standing with them. I think that's a very important distinction. Mm-hmm. Do not fight for them, fight with them. Yeah. Right? And there are also petitions that are going around, you know, stop military aid in the Philippines, Australian yeah. military aid in the Philippines, stop training Indonesian Indonesian military, um, stop uh stop mining, you know, and also uh, yeah, so all the all all these issues, and also do not forget that Australia also has its own issues, especially with with its own First Peoples, right? So these are all struggles that we need to uh, we need to abide by, right? Uh, the struggle for land rights, the struggle for recognition, the struggle for treaty, right? These are all these are all uh, these are all issues that are in Australia, right? So we need to deal with that too right Australia is also guilty of this there's an ongoing genocide here in Australia this whole country is a crime scene that's why it is you know it is ludicrous to even ask migrants to assimilate into a country like this so we do not want to assimilate those if the Australian government is listening, we do not want to assimilate. In a country <laughs> that have committed all these crimes, thank you very much.
0: <laughs> yes, thank you, Gerald. That was, yeah. <laughs> Drop the mic. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that was excellent. <laughs>
1: um,
0: all right, on that note, we're going to go to our second song break for the day. This is Long Live Palestine Part 3 by Low Key. Enjoy, everyone. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. This is Radio Monash's No Theory. We're here today with filmmaker and activist, Gerald. So, Gerald, why did you decide to start making films? Could you tell us more about this?
2: Well, yeah. Um, So, when (laughs) I was here, when I was in the artists' organization, also our organization, my organization that I forgot to uh say as well is the advanced league of people's artists and within that uh within that collective there is this Filipino director called Arnel Mardocchio who also directed um Almaata which I had a part of but he, he's an award winning director in the Philippines um very you know very held in high regard and he you know he convinced me to uh do you know try filmmaking and I tried it and haven't looked back since. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's how I got into it, yeah
1: awesome so um you mentioned that your films focus on the filipino and migrant experience mm. um could you tell us a bit more about that and how they focus on those issues mm.
2: so one of my my first film which you know uh was shot on an iphone and was actually in the monash youth film festival that was the first film festival that i ever got accepted to for my first short film so that short film dealt with, it's called generations of resistance as uh, as I said before my grandparents, my parents were all involved in this struggle so it, I saw it as kind of like generational uh, resistance uh, that, that was going on right so It focuses on the continuity and the memory of resistance in Philippine Philippine societies with a focus on the diaspora, right? Recognizing that the diaspora itself is a product of Philippine society, right? You wouldn't be here if there was no labor export policy in the Philippines. You wouldn't be here if there is national industrialization in the Philippines. You wouldn't be here if there was agrarian reform in the Philippines. You wouldn't be here if there were... jobs (laughs) jobs <laughs> in the Philippines mm-hmm. you wouldn't be here if it wasn't because of imperialism and I'm saying that very broadly obviously not everyone is here as economic migrants right not everyone but the vast majority are here as economic migrants so I, I guess what my films are trying to tell is that especially for the second generation migrants especially the youth is that do not forget you know where you come from do not forget why you are here in the first place because if you cannot comprehend you know, why we are here in the first place, then we cannot comprehend the idea of going back uh, to the Philippines, right? Because I I see a lot of the youth here, especially in the diaspora, you know, fetishizing, for example, indigenous culture, pre-colonial, pre-colonial Philippines, right? But that's all good and well, but, you know if we're going to showcase Indigenous culture, we should take up Indigenous struggle in the Philippines as well, right? We cannot take aesthetics and then not be involved in a struggle that they are waging, right? That is just pure appropriation in in my opinion. Even if you're Filipino, you're not Indigenous. And if you're appropriating Indigenous culture without even acknowledging that there's a struggle going on, then it's just appropriation to me. So that is what my films are trying to tell, is that there is a very strong connection between the diaspora and also the people in the philippines that your fate here as a people a person in the diaspora is dictated by the people in the philippines as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Brilliant. And you mentioned briefly before um, your involvement in making the film Alma Ata. Mm. Um, you've also spoken about it on social media mm. and said that it serves as an ode to the unwavering struggle of the Filipino people. Mm. Um yeah, could you tell us a little bit more about this and what your actual experience was like mm. in making in helping make it?
2: Yeah. So Alma Ato was directed by, you know, as, as I said before, my yep. mentor, uh, Arnold, Magdo- uh, Arnold Mardocchio, in which um, he flew a lot of uh, his crew from the Philippines here and also our award-winning actress, shout out to Prado, um, in the Philippines, uh, who also I got to work with in, in the film. And mm-hmm. it gave me an idea of what it's actually like to be a filmmaker, mm-hmm. right? The hard, long hours of shooting, you know, waking up at 4 a.m. just to go to Altona Beach. It's not even that good at Altona Beach, but at 4 a.m. waking up just to shoot, like, you know, the sunrise um, uh, at Altona Beach and also, you know, living, living, breathing cinema during that during that stretch, you know. It gave me a perspective on the importance of collective filmmaking, right? That everyone in the crew is also an artist on their own right right it's not only the director there's a director cinematographer production manager all of these people are also artists on their own right right the editor Mm -hmm. as well so it gave me an idea that you know the director is not a dictator (laughs) in the Mm -hmm. process of making a film and that this is a collective uh, a collective environment especially the stories we're making you know I was I was reminded very early on that the stories that we're making are not our own right the products our films are not our own these are the people who we're telling in these stories are the owners of these films right whether you, even if you're a director even if you're a cine- cine- cinematographer you know these stories should uh, serve the people who you are telling these stories to mm. and you should do them justice and should involve them in the process as well. Yes, definitely.
0: I think that's something that's really hard, um, yeah, definitely obviously in filmmaking, but also Mm. like photography and photojournalism, which is something I'm having a look at at the moment. Mm. And finding that balance between, okay, I want this to have utility and to elevate the voice of the subjects basically, Mm. to, you know, as you're saying, serve them. Mm. And for it not to be like hedonistic or voyeuristic or self-serving. Because I think Mm. with a lot of these things, it, it can become that, like we have you know award seasons and whatnot and like i guess praising someone who goes into some of like particularly war zone territories and Mm. is taking like photographs of people who Mm. are directly affected by these conflicts or even Mm. as you're talking about indigenous communities Mm. and then going and winning an award for that Mm. like the ethics of it gets very complicated Mm. Mm. and messy Mm. even if maybe the good intentions Mm. are there so Mm. i mean it's really interesting
2: and it's also like an idealistic you know point of view as well you know you could win all these awards but we're talking about the material implications of your work Mm -hmm. as well right Um, I don't believe in art for art's sake I don't think, you know, mm-hmm. art art is always informed by your experiences. Whether that's your class origin, whether that's your race, whether that's your gender, it's always marked by something. There's no sub- such thing. I don't know why people keep pushing this idea that there's objective art. People, there are. there is no objective art. It is always informed by a certain narrative, right? Even if you stay neutral, yeah, right? That's in called neutral. Itself, yes. Yeah, yep. it's a political stance yeah, yeah. as well, right? So it is always, you know, historically... Um, whether these are in dictatorships, fascist dictatorships, in the Philippines especially, artists have always played a vital role in informing the public and also joining the struggle of the people, right? Your job, in my opinion, my humble opinion, your job as an artist is not just to tell these stories but to be involved in these narratives as well, right? If you're telling the... If you're telling the for example the stories of a uh, peasant community you should always be in that peasant community anyway and involved in that struggle yeah. you mm-hmm. know immersion is the key here right you cannot tell a story from the sidelines you cannot talk uh, about this stuff from the sidelines, you should always be immersed and joining these struggles, mm-hmm. right? Not coming from an anthropological point of view that you cannot interfere with your subject. Is that? <laughs> is that? This is an artist's point of view, right? True. To be informed. To be informed as an artist, you need to this lived experience, mm-hmm. right? And uh, abolish that individual individualistic mind frame that a lot of artists have. No, artist is collective. Art is collective, not individualistic.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much for that, Gerald. Nice. I feel like you've just helped me with a lot of my ethical crises <laughs> I've been going through at the moment. <laughs>
1: so,
0: no, that's excellent. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Well, sadly, I think that's all we have time for mm. today, Gerald. Um, I feel like we could talk about this for hours more. Yeah. You yeah. have so many great points. I feel like I've really learned a lot. Um, before we wrap up, would you like to share with listeners where they can find you on Instagram as well as your creative work?
2: Mm. Uh, my Instagram um, <laughs> my Instagram handle is a bit, you know, it's a bit uh, controversial. Um, it's called at the Philippine Ho. That's the Philippine <laughs> plus her. And there's also my art account. is called the Protracted Lens uh, in Instagram. So you could find me there. And also I do provide some services. Uh, You know, if you want a music video done, just hit me up. I don't charge uh, fees like that. Whatever you feel you can afford, that's all I'm charging. So, yeah, hit me up.
1: Brilliant. Awesome. Thank you you so much. No worries. had some very fascinating conversations. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely.
0: So, um, would you like to introduce the last song for today to lead us out? The Australia Does Not Exist? Yeah, this
2: song, Australia Does Not Exist, is uh, a song by Dreaming Now. And... um, Actually talking about how Australia as a concept uh, does not exist uh, in the context of Indigenous people here as Mm -hmm. well. Knowing that Australia beforehand, before it was given a name, was a lot of nations, Indigenous nations um, here, right? So... This is a song called Australia Does Not Exist. Australia does not exist up to now. Australia is a concept. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Great. Great. Thanks so much, Gerald. Enjoy, everyone. We'll be back next week for our last episode of the semester at 2pm. Thanks. Bye.